for me, like connecting with music that is really old and imagery and storytelling that's really old made me want to write songs that felt like they could speak to the age but also could have been written hundreds of years ago. That's Tony Award winner Anais Mitchell. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists can speak their truths. Anais Mitchell is my guest on this episode, the second episode of Same Wavelength. Anais Mitchell just won a Tony Award for the Broadway musical that she wrote called Hades Town. She won for Best Original Score. Hadestown won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and it made Broadway history by being the first production written and directed by women to win Best Musical. I'll tell you more about Hadestown in a minute. I want to quickly tell you a little bit about myself and let you know what I'm bringing to this podcast. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hi, Michael. Good morning, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks about social and political issues. Over the last couple of years, I've been really struggling to make sense of what's happening in our country. Maybe you can relate. One of the reasons that I turn to the artists and the art that I turn to is because it makes me feel less alone. For me, talking with artists is such a source of energy and discovery. I'm realizing there's so much to learn from artists about how to navigate the world during trying and divisive times. I feel like artists can teach us how to better connect with our history and how to better connect with one another when we're feeling disconnected and overwhelmed. I hope Same Wavelength might offer an opportunity for you like it does for me to slow down a bit and breathe, to rethink and reflect amid our distracting and dizzying news cycle. Lastly, I'm, I'm grateful for your ears. There's so many places to be directing your attention these days. So it means so much to me that you're here and listening. So I thank you for that. My guest on episode two of Same Wavelength. Hey, this is Anais Mitchell. Tony Award winner, Anais Mitchell. Anais Mitchell was born and raised in Vermont, and she started releasing records in 2002. Her folk opera record, Hadestown, which came out originally in 2010, just opened on Broadway. And as I said, just won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Orchestrations, Best Director of a Musical, and Anais won one for Best Original Score. The director of Hadestown, Rachel Chavkin, won the award for Best Director. And as I said, and I'm, I want to say it again, Hadestown made Broadway history by being the first production written and directed by women to win Best Musical. Both Rachel and Anais' speeches that they gave at the Tonys are, are both really incredible and worth watching. And uh, you can find both of those in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. Hadestown is a retelling of the Greek myth of Eurydice and Orpheus, and the original folk opera record features Justin Vernon from Bon Iver and Ani DeFranco. Anais started touring Hadestown around New England as a DIY theater project, and in 2016, an expanded theatrical version of it debuted at the New York Theater Workshop. It then had a run in Canada in 2017, and then at London's National Theater in late 2018, and it opened on Broadway this spring. I spoke with Anais over the phone before the run in London last year and before it was announced that it was coming to Broadway. So it's, it's awesome to listen back as we talk about the evolution of the project as well as its relevance to today's political climate. 
Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for the episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And those are there because I hope this podcast can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. Here's my conversation with Anais Mitchell on Same Wavelength. Hey, Michael. Hey, Anais. Thank you so much for taking some time today to talk. Um, Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, your music has uh, been with me for a long time. I think I saw you first open for Dan Byrne back in 2004 at the Iron Horse in Northampton. Oh, Um, that's amazing. And it was right around uh, Hymns for the Exiled, I think. I think that was maybe already out, or I'm not totally sure. That sounds about right. I would have been a, like a college student in. I graduated from college in '04, <laughs> it's and I made that record in that, that spring of my senior year. Ah, so cool. Well, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that record and kind of a lot of your music through the through the years and yet kind of your progression as as an artist. Totally. So yeah, the idea here is I'm having conversations with artists about how they're processing what's going on right now politically. Um, you know, and how that affects their creative process, if it does. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so glad to be talking to you about it. And it's funny because when you first reached out about it, I was like, oh, God, (laughs) what do I have to say? You know, like, would I even be able to talk about that? And then, um, because it's been a while, you know, it's been sort of a while since since, uh, uh, that show you saw in 04, where I would have been a a student actually studying political science and really, you know, engaging in stuff. And now I'm a mom and like I'm a, you know, I'm working and like a citizen in a very different way than I used to be. And um, but I, I think of this as a really cool opportunity to like see, <laughs> see where I'm at. Totally. And, um, well, where, where you're at, where the, where the country is at and, and how things have changed. Totally. Well, thank you for saying that. And it's, you know, the goal here is to really have as many voices represented here as possible. Yeah. And, you know, my feeling is there's no right or wrong way for these ideas to manifest themselves in art. It's actually kind of what's exciting about having these conversations is exploring the wide range of different forms and and different language that these things can take on. So your, your voice is certainly very much legitimate and, you know, from my perspective and, you know, so that's that. Um, So cool. Thank you. I'm I'm glad to be talking to you. Yeah, me too. Um, So I do want to open the conversation by asking you, Anais, if there's anything weighing on you or exciting you right now, or if there's you know something that you feel particularly charged up about, either politically or artistically, um, that you want to start the conversation with, I'd love to start there if you have anything. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, the thing that I'm kind of putting all of my energy towards right now, and for the past few years, actually, is this project that started way back in 06 and 07 um, called Hades Town, which is a, a musical based on the Orpheus myth and set in this post-apocalyptic kind of Americana political dreamscape world. And I've been working on it on and off for all these years, but now it's become like a a full-length theater show with uh, actors and designers and director and producers. And I I sort of have put my regular songwriting career kind of on hold. Yeah. Just put put all my focus on that. And, you know, it's funny because I've been working on it for so long. uh, I started writing it in my 20s. And I've changed, you know, who I am as a, as a songwriter has changed in 10 years or 12 years and, um, and the, and the world has changed too. And so, um, that story, which is a political story, feels like it means something different now than it did when I, when I first started working on it.
So that so that's um, that's kind of the canvas on which I'm working out. Totally. <laughs> most of my feelings about what's going on in the world uh, right now. Yeah. Well, what a cool canvas to be kind of channeling your efforts towards. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I remember hearing Hades Town for the first time. I was you know college student and has you know was just totally blown away. It became kind of a an album that was on repeat for me and a lot of my friends, honestly, at the time. Oh, I love that. Um, I love yeah, that. and, you know, I, I got to see it at the New York Theater Workshop. Which, oh, wow. So yeah. Cool. So that story of Town, based on the Orpheus myth, taps into this classic archetype of a powerful leader, Hades, um, who offers security at the expense of freedom. And as you said, you started working on this, say, 10 years ago, long before the rise of our president. Um mm-hmm. Having written about and, and really gotten into the character of this kind of archetypal demagogue and understanding the recurrence of that archetype through human history, were you surprised by the rise of Donald Trump? Um, well, it, it, it definitely has felt surreal. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> it felt surreal to all of us yeah. in various ways, but um, but. To hear him, you know, yeah, writing this show, and of course, probably like we're both talking about this this one particular song, "Why We Build the Wall," where yeah. this, this leader is, um, the, who is Hades in the show, is um, is building a, a a wall around his kind of company town, nation state, to keep the the poor people out, and um, and he sings this call and response with his. Um, his workers, his citizens, about what you know, why they're building this wall, and it was a real surprise and very surreal to see, even in the um, the uh, the campaign era at these rallies, that there was this sort of call and response thing going on that that really echoed the song. And I think it's I think it's just a testament to like the Im- the image of building a wall is a very um, very old one, obviously, and walls have been built since people could pick up a stone and um, put it on top of another stone. And it's an image that works on people that feel scared. You know, it's like something people can, gra- can grab onto. Why do we build the wall? My children, my children, why do we build the wall? children my children how does the wall keep us free and so there's nothing like new about Donald Trump using that image uh, in the way that he has, but it is somehow surprising. You know, I I guess I feel this in various ways watching the Trump presidency was with a kind of incredulity, like the the ways in which he is attacking the, the press that feels so transparently old school, like, like we've seen this, you know, like this is, it looks like a fascist thing from like decades ago that we yeah. said we're all past it that now but we're clearly we're not you know and there, and there's a reason these things happen uh they're, they're still effective like um yeah and there's definitely an orwellian element to it as well kind of pitting 
the citizens against their neighbors. And, you know, in this case, totally. in, in our case, immigration, it's yeah, we've seen it before. But yet, you know, as you said, it, it's still very surreal that it's happening to us now. Yes, yes. And hard to know how to respond or kind of how hysterical to be at any given moment. Right. And, yeah, exactly. Because uh, yeah. hysteria you know, while maybe sometimes is appropriate, it only gets us so far, I think, right? Right, right. <laughs> totally. Um, so are you making changes to Town as it appears on the record, which came out in 2010? Um, are you kind of shifting the theatrical production of it at all as a way to, you know, reflect what's happening right now in our country? Um, you know, for me, it's pretty important that Hades is not Donald Trump. Yeah. You know? And I want that to remain. And I really like don't want everything to be about this guy who happened to be, to be president right now. Totally. Yeah. But there are ways in which like different themes have become stronger and um, and more fleshed out. And um, I, I, I also feel like the character of Hades has become much more nuanced in the stage show. Um, just thinking about him and his sort of his weakness for his wife, his human side, and that he does have the ability to be, to be moved and changed by Orpheus, even though in the end, he sort of, you know, ends up winning the day. Uh, I definitely think that because of who Persephone is, as this goddess of the natural world, and then Hades as this, the way that he is in this show, this industrialist, capitalist, boss king, and their, like, troubled marriage, you know, between the natural world and, and, and industry, that climate change and, and global warming and this sort of degradation of nature has become really important theme in the show and and that wouldn't have been the case back you know when the album came out i think that i think it's gotten more specific and sort of in that direction yeah and you know you're tapping into mythology and folklore that dates back Mm -hmm. a long time you know and i mean that's kind of i I, probably in that is where kind of the fun of, of hadestown exists where it's like you can you get to make political commentary that's you know also kind of wrapped in a story and inside human qualities because you have actors playing, yeah. you know, these characters. So that, I don't know, that may, yeah, that maybe that allows you to say certain things without being so overt or explicit about it. Yeah, 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 totally. Or it feels bigger than, it feels bigger than this wall. It's like every wall. Yeah. <laughs> or it's bigger than, you know, this instance of kind of greed or monopolization of power. It's like every time that that happens. Yeah. And, you know, it's not just this generation, but every generation of artists or you know, lover, optimist who believes they can change the world with, with their art. Orpheus represents all, all of those people. Yeah. Do you see yourself in the Orpheus character? That's funny. I feel like I've seen myself in various <laughs> of the characters. He's the one that really has been the hardest to write. Um, the mm. one who's, whose songs are sustaining like the most changes now. Why do you think sense. that is? Well, you know what's interesting, Michael, is like in a way he does sit in this strange place of um, he's not like a revolutionary, you know, he's not a Che Guevara character, mm. right? Yeah. He is, he's a poet. He's an, he's an artist, but his role in this story really is that of like someone who's trying to change the world and someone who's trying to, um, you know, go against kind of the system. So it's been tricky to to find that like balance of his his power and clarity in the face of Hades and then also his just like his artistic nature if it's true what they say but the ones who tell the lies are the solemnest to swear 
And the ones who load the dice Always say the toss is fair And the ones who deal the cards Are the ones who take the tricks With their hands over their hearts While we play the game they fix And the ones who speak So you're, you're continuing to write new songs for Hadestown? Yeah, yes, or change the ones that, that exist. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's never done. So I'm still, wor- you know, working on the, the lyrics, the music, the whole thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, Hadestown is, like, really tricky because it does ex- It has been uh, in the works for so long, and there are people that have a relationship with some of the songs, you know, for going way back. And, and I don't, um, I also don't want to, like, disfigure it to the point that it doesn't feel like the same kind of, Touchstone. So, so a lot of the work is like in newer material, like newer songs, and also the um, the narration of the character of Hermes, who sort of helps to frame things and, and just put them in context for us. So, yeah, I hope it's still getting better, Michael. That's what. So yeah. So what's <laughs> that's the goal? No, that's know? awesome. What what is the future of Hades Town? Because you you are working on it. Um, yeah, yeah. There there is a future. <laughs> Well, you know, it'd be silly to not say out loud that, like, we're hoping, we hope to go to Broadway. That's, that's amazing. You know, that's Ugh. the goal. And, oh, my God. You know, I'll believe it when I see it, but that's, uh, I'm putting my eggs in that basket That's right so now, exciting. That just gave me, gave me chills. That is so, like, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I hope, I hope it happens. And when it does, um, we'll hang out when you come down to New York. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I am so excited for you. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I really <laughs> hope that pans out. It, it deserves to be, but, you know. Who am I to say? There's various factors that that kind of have to fall into place. I imagine there are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Kind of speaking more generally and zooming out a little bit, your songs and your storytelling have always adopted this, uh, I guess, this compassionate and egalitarian worldview. And and it feels like there's a fight in them for a a more humane world with less suffering. Um, Mm. And you've spoken, you know, in saying truth to power since you started writing songs do you view, you know, the role of a songwriter and the artist kind of being different right now during really politically turbulent times? Is it different to be an artist now than it is during kind of more smoother time periods, do you think? Mm. Well, you know, I did, um, when I first started writing songs, I, I guess I was in high school, but then soon after that was sort of another such era because it was, um, I was a student and I was studying political science and um, George Bush II was elected like the year that I was a freshman in school and September 11th happened the year after that and there was the war and there was so many changes happening in this really rapid way and I was very engaged I think at the time as a student and and as a writer and at that time I really um, I was inspired by kind of protest music you know the, the idea of folks like you know early Bob Dylan stuff and Phil Oaks and Joan Baez and, and like Pete Seeger. And, and there were, you know, there were rallies, there were demonstrations. You could go and it would be cool to actually have a song <laughs> you could sing that would speak to the moment that would, that would feel like a kind of a, of a rallying cry. And so that first record of mine has, has some stuff that I think of now as like a little more soapboxy than what I'm comfortable with now. Mm, yeah. But that felt to me like this is, this is one way to write songs. And, um, and this is, there's a need for this. There's like a use for this. And then um, a little later, I found that I couldn't write in that same way. I actually can remember exactly the song that I 
discovered it on, yeah. <laughs> which was, um, it was the next record I was working on, the Brightness songs, which a lot of them are, are kind of love songs. And But um, I was trying to write a song about Hurricane Katrina and the kind of what had happened and not happened and the, and the government response and the I started, I wrote verses and verses. I'm a very slow writer, you know, and I, and I oftentimes throw away, like, many times the verses that I, many times more verses than actually end up in the song. Right. And um, there was all this, you know, I was trying and trying to write this angry kind of song about how the government had failed the people of New Orleans. And then what ended up coming out was this song called Out of Pawn, which is, which really is another kind of love song. And it's it's a story, mostly a true story about a couple that meet and fall in love in the great city of New Orleans right right before that storm happened. Mm. And um and it felt like suddenly the light turned on for me that it felt more important or more, or more like my role to um to tell stories and kind of humanize a political situation than to write about it as if I was writing like a letter to the editor yeah. or a um you know a an essay. At some point, you kind of have to make the choice, like, well, is this a letter to the editor, <laughs> or is this a song? And and for me, like, music is so inherently emotional and human that um, it's it's for me, it's a beautiful medium to kind of put a face on, put feelings on what otherwise would just be a series of ideas and opinions. Hey, Uncle Louis, the city is spinning. She sure is pretty, you sure are grinning She's leading you home from the heat of the bar To lie on the levee and look at the stars You can hold her hand, you can kiss her face, go feel like that moment that you kind of with that song specifically that you kind of decided maybe I'm going to leave some of the more preachy stuff behind was that a decision solely rooted in how you were thinking about yourself as the performer or did did some of it also have to do with how the audience was maybe going to react to a song Interesting. like how it's received I guess yeah yeah I mean certainly like there's a world of polit- of protest music where like if you're singing a protest song to the there's a preaching to the choir thing, which can be very yeah. exciting, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, these people are so into it because we all believe the same thing, and that's you know that's so that can be really inspiring for people who who do hold the same opinion. But it's maybe not going to go further than that. You know, it's maybe not going to be the kind of song that could that could change somebody's heart or make them see something in a, in a different way. Yeah. And also, I think I probably got, like, deeper into really old folk music at some point, and that started to, you know, re- like, English and Scottish and Irish folk balladry. Yeah, totally. And that sort of connecting with music that is really old and imagery and storytelling that's really old made me want to write songs that felt like they could have been written, you know, that they could speak to the age, but also could have been written hundreds of years ago. That always has felt like very deep to me, very um, 
and and not uh, sort of like binding back or like connecting to these these ancient archetypes. Um, and I, I have to say, for me, like it literally was just what what I could write. <laughs> like what like I tried and tried to make it happen in the other way, and I couldn't. And there's there is so much of that for me in the writing process of like kind of discovering what what is going to pass through my heart right now. Mm. And it has to be genuine, right? And it's yeah. like, if it doesn't feel genuine, I can't really, I can't really go through with it. Right. You <laughs> so, don't want to put your name on it. You don't want to be spending your time and energy singing it. Yeah, yeah. So somehow that, that was really like eye-opening for me, right? you know, that moment in writing out a pawn. And, um, you know, there's only so many... There's only so many notes in the scale, like there's only so many words in the language. And it's like none of these things that we are writing are we coming up with from scratch, right? right? Like right. We're, we're all like standing on the backs of the art that's come before us and our, and our ancestors and stuff. And, and to be able to like feel comfortable with that has been maybe part of, part of the journey. I, I know for sure that like um, Young Man in America, with, uh, an album that came out a few years later, then the brightness that one that one was very influenced by that old folk music and and it does have some political themes i think or kind of like emotional exploration of political themes but sort of leaning way into these old images and stories yeah and you know that sort of speaks to this the, the cyclical nature of humans i guess and how we do kind of and also great storytelling you know captures this the cyclical you know nature of 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 our history um, does, I mean, while there's obviously something comforting in that, and, you know, as an artist, there's a lot of amazing work to kind of dig back deep into and, and, and draw from as inspiration. Is there an element to that that is sort of frustrating too, where it's like, we've been struggling with this for thousands of years. Like where we haven't mm -hmm. learned a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, not that yeah. that's not that that's the role of the artist to solve the problems, but I don't know. Is that, um, I don't know. Any thoughts on yeah. that? That's, um, that's not like a thought that I've had that has depressed me. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you good. know what I mean? Yeah. I think I more have found solace in like the idea that like, oh, people have dealt with fascists before or, you know, oh, like, um, uh, but I don't, but I, I see, I totally see what you're saying and maybe I'll go be depressed about it after. Well, no, I don't, I don't, I hope <laughs> not. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's probably healthier to draw inspiration from people who have, you know, in, in our history have dealt with these things and have been badasses and done awesome things. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. They did this and we can use that as a model and now we can learn from that. But I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm just like, hmm, yeah, well, powerful leaders have been building walls for thousands of years. Um, right. You know, I guess Trump no, is just another does, one in it, the long it does list. Feel, I mean, certainly like when you look just to, to think about, you know, that decades of like nuclear demilitarization, like scaling back of those arsenals is going to maybe be turned around now, you know, like, how, like, did we not learn the lesson the first time or to think that like, like again, it seems like again and again, we learned the lesson about climate change and, and the response is still to, you know, to ignore it <laughs> or, yeah. um, you know, that there, there's just, that there are powerful industries that are interested in keeping, holding back, you know, holding things back, the progress that, that would be possible if people, put their minds to it. Do you think, I mean, do you think art can play a role in that process? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is it? <laughs> that's the, so that's the question. Thing, one thing. 
I was going to say that, you know, you were talking about like, what's the role of the artist and is it, is it different in, a, in times of political turmoil? And um, I think there is a way in which like art itself, you know, is revolutionary, you know, just the fact that the, the act of going to a live music concert and standing in a room with a bunch of strangers and hopefully, you know, people turn off the devices and like the music starts and people get kind of in tune with each other. Yeah. Sort of breathing in the same way, the um, that act, the creative act, and the act of sharing it and appreciating it. I think that there's something revolutionary about it because it's not. Well, there's a lot of places in the world that people can't do that. Yeah, you know, that's very true. That's an that's an amazing privilege to 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 have as Americans. Totally, totally. And there's also something about art that, like, obviously, that can be commercial. It can be in, industrialized in certain ways, but also it's it's not it stands apart from the kind of greed for money making that i think and this sort of anxiety and like the deeply entrenched result of unbridled capitalism <laughs> in this yeah. country there are antidotes to that and there they are you know there's like a public library and there's a park and there's <laughs> like a there's a music concert and like those that anytime that we can check out of that stuff i think it it does um, remind people what what life is about outside of those things. Yeah, for sure. Do you think that, I mean, at a time right now when there is such this, I mean, it seems like there's this really extreme polarization of, of political sides, um, mm-hmm. and it feels like we're all kind of protecting our tribes and our bubbles more than yeah. we have in a really long time. Um, mm-hmm. And you can kind of combine that landscape with where we are right now with with this sort of instantaneous media consumption that's moving at light speed and you know we mm, we are kind yeah. of i mean i don't want to say we're in totally uncharted territory but we're these are new things for humans to kind of all this stuff that's kind of culminating together in this one big pot is kind of being stirred up in a way that maybe it hasn't been um mm-hmm. do you think all that being said i mean does that stuff change the power that a song can have Hmm. It is very different. I, you're right about that. I mean, one thing that I think is really troubling right now is that as a country, it feels like not only do we have this kind of factionalized set of opinions about things, because that kind of always happens, right? Like people are going to have different opinions. Sure. But um, That's democracy, but right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like two different <laughs> sets of information, right? Or, or more than that. But we're not operating with the same facts. The same information because you can kind of find the information that suits your your cause yeah or your right your, your confirmation bias and basically totally yeah. yeah and and so that kind of feels new to me and also i have the experience with songs and music that i love and maybe you have this um yeah. just like it calms me down to put on music that mm. i love like yeah. it it takes it it creates like an expansion of the moment and it takes me I love that about a about going to a concert and I also love it even if my, I'm in the kitchen like with my kid right and my kid she like wants a thing and I'm like oh, I have to cook dinner I put on some music and my kid is really into Joni Mitchell right now which nice. is awesome for me so good she's like let's hear Chelsea morning and I'm like all right <laughs> we'll put it on and it's like ah oh, like there's an audible sense of relief you know when that music comes on because we're both like okay I'm going to draw my picture of a princess. I'm going to peel these potatoes. Yeah, cut the onions. Totally. And it is, there is like a, a, 
different quality of the moment that music can create, I think. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And uh, it's cool that songs and music can really also accompany you. You know, they can be a soundtrack to your cooking of your dinner or, you know, you, your life is sort of infused with it. And it's, it doesn't take all, you know, it takes attention, but it doesn't take all your, your attention. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, um, as you were kind of talking about making food in the kitchen, I mean, something I've been listening, to, I've been listening to a lot of jazz, particularly like Coltrane and yeah. kind of late period Coltrane and some of that really interesting free jazz, Albert Eiler and Dewey Redmond and just stuff like that is really just hitting me really powerfully right now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking back to high school and I remember my like playlist that I had on my then iPod because iPhones weren't a thing. I had the sleep playlist and it was basically songs from hymns for the exiled and John Coltrane, a love Supreme. Like that's what I was falling asleep to every night. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and love it. I say that in like, that's still what I'm listening to. It just, I'm processing it differently and it's coming at me in a mm. kind of a different way. But mm. yeah, make, I guess it just makes sense that those things have stayed with me. I don't know that there wasn't mm. really any end to that thought, but I just yeah, wanted to share no, that with you. Interesting. I mean, sometimes I think about the way that we experience music when we're young too, yeah. especially like, you know, in your sort of teenage years. And I had a friend that, that described like <laughs> his teenage son, you know, would have the music that he loved and it would be like, he had to get from the house, you know, into the car in order to get to school. And it would be like, <gasps> like, get this, like, get the, turn the engine on, put the music in, the song comes on, it's like, oh, you know, yeah. there it is. And, there's, and I identify with that. I listen to things so many times in a row and so loudly in high school um, and I and in college. And it's just like, it's almost like a changing your, your, your chemistry or your DNA or it feels like um, it goes in, it goes in in a very deep way. And I think that those things that like, those patterns that you create, you know, when you're young, yeah. they sort of, they remain when you're older. So it doesn't surprise me that you kind of return to some of the old stuff. <laughs> totally. And, and I do too. I do too. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your daughter, your daughter, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, four and a half. Four and a half. Okay, cool. Cause I was going to, so does like kind of having her in your life, you know, start sort of starting to see how she's processing information. Does that change how you're processing information? Mm, yes, Definitely. Definitely. Uh, a, a bunch of things rushed into my brain when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've started a bunch of songs that I feel like in one way or another are influenced by her, but, um, but I haven't finished them really. I've, I mainly have been just working on Hades Town. Um, you know, it's like the impossibility of explaining things to your kids is something I didn't a hundred percent account for. Right. Like, um, you know, even something like, like why we eat meat or what, you know, what that entails. Mm. Um, I remember that, you know, when that, when she figured out <laughs> that chicken was chicken or, you know, yeah. you have to really like explain that. And it, which makes me have to explain those things to myself. To yourself. And, yeah. And there, you know, there's a bunch of times when, um, this is, you know, straying from the like political side of things. Yeah. But, um, where I've, uh, I've had a moment of a thing that you, a miracle that you get used to as a grown up. that then like to, to be with a kid again, you're like, oh my God, this miracle. Mm. Like just the star, you know, the stars were like walking around looking at the stars at night with her and, you know, her trying to grasp that stars are, they look small, but they're actually huge. And there, there are, you know, other galaxies <laughs> out there. Like those things. And then, you know, actually my, um, 
my grandma, my last grandma passed away and I took my daughter up there and in the car I was trying to explain to her, you know, you know, she asked, well, what, ha- what happens when you die? And it was like, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you answer that? You don't. And, or, you know, you can, you can try. Um, but it's one of the like incredible mysteries that we're all living with. And to try to explain that to a kid. I mean, I've found with my kids that actually like she understands and it doesn't seem it doesn't seem troubled by the idea that people die at the end of a long life but the idea that people could hurt or kill each other i have not i have almost not even been able to explain like she's picking it up you know yeah. picking it up from even like cartoons or like books or whatever fairy tales but um yeah she she asked what war was at one point, what refugees were. We took her to a couple of protests, um, mm. and and I feel like really awesome about. It. She got to go to a kids protest in Washington D.C. during the Women's March. Super cool. And then this this latest march that happened in New York, she she went with her dad and um and she made a sign, <laughs> which was her idea, which says save Antarctica and it had a picture of like a penguin and um and she started chanting save Antarctica totally totally unprompted and kept it up for like 20 minutes and really enjoyed it herself that's amazing and that yeah that I found really awesome and she also you know the other day I I was suggesting that we maybe drive to our friend's house because we were running late and she was like well that would be disrespectful to the earth. <laughs> so let's take the subway. So we took the subway, and that was just, you know, it was um, so funny to be, like, chastised by my four-year-old and also, like, just so heartening that she Yeah, she's it. picking yeah, things yeah. up. She's learning. That's yeah. super cool. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel um, right now, we kind of mentioned the preaching to the choir and, and, like, that kind of aspect to being a folk singer, I guess. Like, do you feel like you get to engage with a pretty wide variety of political ideologies these days? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, I would say that most of the places that I play, and because of my music and maybe the nature of it, the, that I am preaching to the choir a lot. Um, I did a tour two years ago with Patty Griffin and Sarah Watkins. It was, it yeah. was Patty's idea. And she wanted to do something with a couple of other women in league with the League of Women Voters. It was really like, it was like a rock the vote tour. But the League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan organization. They just want people to vote. They don't ask how, you know, which direction they're going to vote in. They, they yeah. just want to empower people, women and everyone, um, to, to vote. Yeah, and encouraging, so, encouraging democracy. Yeah, yeah. And that tour was, um, was sort of explicitly nonpartisan. Like, and I remember I, w- I would play wall on that tour and, and that was, that was cool. And it was, because in a way that song isn't partisan, right? Like it's a mythological or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was an interesting experience to be, and we played a lot of towns in the South and a lot of towns that would be like less traditionally Democrat. And um, I loved that. I loved being able to speak to a wider audience and and really it be about the common the common experience of like responding to music responding to stories and songs yeah Um, but that felt really great and i um i remember that after trump was elected i wrote something on facebook i I have a sort of mixed relationship with this with social media and, and how 
how much political stuff to put out there because it sort of feels like there's a lot of fruitless argument that goes on there, a lot of a lot of like pretty ugly name calling and you know. Yeah. Uh, I just don't don't really want to bring that energy. <laughs> yeah. But occasionally, like you have to, and and I do, and 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 when Trump was elected, like I I wrote a long post about it that I wanted to share with ev- with you know a- anyone who I've sort of crossed paths with on you know professionally I'm on Facebook and it was really like hey like I understand that some people are Republican or conservative and like that's okay and you know that this is not about that like Trump is not that like yeah. he's not out he's not out for anyone's good except his own and his friends <laughs> and like the this this seems clear to me and and I sort of expected in that moment that I was speaking to the choir but then I got a lot of kind of blowback from for it and I tried to engage people I tried to engage people um in a in a real way on there and it, and it does feel useful if you know that you're not going to be calling each other names like you're not going to it's not about winning some kind of it's it's about an exchange of ideas and information right um, and hopefully you know that only works when both parties are open to that, obviously. Yeah. I guess basically being open to having your mind change, right? That's a really hard, yeah. that's a challenging thing as humans. And, um, Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and in a way, it takes space and time and reflection and patience to, like, you know, really bend your mind around a new idea or someone else's experience. It's not the kind of thing that happens immediately in a 140-character flash, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, it does feel, I mean, do you know the, um, there's a professor of social and moral psychology, Jonathan Haidt. Okay. He actually wrote a, a book years ago, you know, five, six years ago called The Righteous Mind, Why mm. Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. Uh-huh. Um, and he basically puts forth this idea that liberals and conservatives need each other, and there's a reason mm-hmm. why we have the values and the belief systems that we do. Um, his ideas are fascinating. I've been like really, really into his stuff just in the last year yeah. because he's like, oh, this oh, is, this, yeah, this feels potent. Uh, totally. And I think like at the risk of like making some grandiose statement yeah. <laughs> um, that like, yeah, there is room for different attitudes towards, you know, the government and um, what is, what is right for society. Um there's also like industries that are billion dollar <laughs> industries that are that are looking out for their bottom line and that has infiltrated our politics really deeply totally. you know in in ways that i think a lot of things we can point to like certainly certainly global warming climate change like i i can remember this time when i was um i was living briefly in austin texas and i was i was cocktail waitressing at this bar on 6th street and these like um these oil lobby guys came in and i, I was serving drinks to them and you know i was a hippie or whatever and yeah. <laughs> you know i had said something about the oil industry and or global warming and they and they were like oh that's you know that's a hoax and i remember this this conversation so clear because I was still sort of working it out in my brain, but I was like, what's the motivation, you know, for, for what's the motivation for environmentalists to make up this hoax where on the other side you have a billion dollar industry. You can clearly see what the motivation is for them. Right. And it's not happening, you know, totally. And like the same thing is so true. I, you know, I, I always wonder when it comes to like gun control, it's like, well, 
how come we can't how come we can't pass common sense gun laws if if polls show that the majority of people want that it's because there's a there's a huge industry making money off of the deregulation of gun sales and like that's real like that's part of that that's not necessarily how our neighbor feel i mean there certainly like there there are those who are just like you know really attached to second amendment and like uh that's that's their ideology but then there's also you know there's so much money being pumped into that that industry and and then what's the other one oh healthcare yeah <laughs> really right jumping all around <laughs> right it's like we are the only industrialized country that has this like these this industry that's making a fortune off of denying people the healthcare that they need and it's like Many countries have just said, you know, absolutely not. Like this is unconscionable. We can't have that. Yeah. Um, you don't get healthcare because you can afford it or not. You know, it's it's a thing that we are gonna, as a society, give to our citizens, and and that's something that we haven't done here. And why? You know, it's not because there's not the will of the people to do it. It's that you know somebody's making a load of money. Right. <laughs> and so just like keeping an eye on that stuff feels so important. Totally. What, you know, what is our actual political climate and what is actually money talking um, and pretending to be, you know, political opinion. Yeah. No, I know that it's, it's hard to, there isn't anything, there's no such thing as conscionable when there's so much money behind it, you know? It's, yeah. You know, I was talking about that young man in America record. Yeah. Um, definitely a lot of kind of, my feelings about American capitalism <laughs> ended up on that record, not in a, not in like a, um, essayistic way per se, but, um, you know, that, that song, Young Man in America is, is very, uh, is about the kind of experience of like the American experience of feeling kind of like a wild thing or an orphan, <laughs> like that you're, um, you know, the government isn't necessarily going to protect you, right? Like you're not, you're not necessarily going to get uh, health care or, or get to go to college, you know, or um, or be protected from your neighbor who has a gun or be protected from the, you know, the um, whatever factory you're downriver from. Like, no one's looking out for you, so you're just kind of out there in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. And the kind of, and also the hunger and the, like, the restlessness and the, and the um, never enough feeling that I think... We all kind of have, having grown up in a capitalist society, like, um, and maybe, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. It's, it's, it's an emotional thing, a thing you wake up with in the morning. We're like, that never enough feeling, never enough work, never enough money, you know. Hungry as a prairie dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What you got is not enough. Yeah. 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 My mother gave a mighty shot, opened her legs and let me out. Hungry as a prairie dog Young man in America Young man in America Hungry, hungry Running every which way Young man in America I come out like a cannonball Come of age of alcohol Raving in a field of rye With a black and roving eye Black and roving eye Raving what you got is not enough, young man in America. I read this article about Detroit. This was in the this was after the recession, and there was this article about these um 
these dogs, these just like wild dogs. And the gist of the article was that they had been family dogs that there were all these foreclosures on houses and for whatever reason, like these dogs were abandoned and now they were running free in the streets of Detroit. And just that mm. image of this, this wild nature um, that feels very American. You know, it does, it does feel like a thing. And, and I love America. I mean, I love, it's yeah. so bizarre. In a weird way, we thrive in spite of all this stuff, you know? Totally. Or, um, uh, yeah, I think like so much exciting art comes out of America and those artists are, you know, sleeping on couches <laughs> and like yeah. not, they're not going to get a grant from the government to make their, their art. They're like, yeah, um, it feels kind of backwards. Yeah, that's wild. Um, that, that record, Young Man America, was inspired by your father as well, correct? Yeah, partly. Yep. Yeah. My dad uh, was and is a writer, um, but when he was young, he wrote a bunch of novels and one of them was uh, was called The Souls of Lambs. And there's a song on that album called Shepherd, which is which is a kind of ballad version of that book. And and the story in Souls of Lambs is, is about this shepherd who the beginning of the story is like he um, his wife is pregnant and he um he wants to bring in a crop of hay for his flock of sheep. This is the thing. I grew up, you know, on an actual sheep farm, and this is the thing in the summer where you have to have three days of sun without rain so you can get the bales made and then um, get them into the barn before, so they don't get rained on and ruined. And um, yeah. and so this shepherd is, um, his wife goes into labor, but she's like, finish the job, you know, and he's like, okay, and he goes out and tries to finish the job, and then um, he loses his wife in childbirth and so it's like the just that human cost of this the sort of his fixation on finishing the job that felt like it also spoke to the you know the stuff we're talking about it's like oh. what are the human costs the shepherd drove into the storm and to and from the yellow barn hear that song the the thing that i think of and i didn't realize there was a connection to your dad's writing with that but there's that woody guthrie song i ain't got no home in this world anymore uh-huh. um uh-huh. was that song at all was that story inspired at all by that song not not in a conscious way okay because there's a, a verse that goes was a farming on the shares and always i was poor my crops i lay into the banker's store my wife took down and died upon the cabin floor and i ain't got no <gasps> home in this world anymore was a farming on the shares and always I was poor. My crops I lay into the banker's store. My wife took down and died up on the cabin floor. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Wow, that's incredible. I've yeah. never heard that. And the only reason that. I even, I mean, that's yeah. a song I've heard a bunch, but I was talking to Billy Bragg, and that's a song that he covers. Um, mm. And he, mm-hmm. the reason he he's telling me all the reasons he loves this song, but he's like the thing that to me is the most powerful 
enduring part of that of that Woody song is that line about the the wife, yeah. you know, and then he ties Billy ties that into healthcare. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm sort of thinking, oh my god, that is that reminds me so much of Aeneas's song Shepherd. Huh. But I just thought that that similarity was was really uh, was really That's cool. That's amazing. Yeah, it's powerful. The rhymes are great. I I'll have to listen to that song again. Yeah. Um, with Shepherd and maybe he did another. I guess the specific songs on on Young Man in America. Um, to me, both those songs, there's this sympathy towards the wor- worker's point of view. Mm. And there are perspectives in those songs that probably a lot of Trump supporters could align with. Mm. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it does feel like just the irony of the century that, like, that Trump would gain the support of peop- of hardworking people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just like uh, you know, him as an example, like his life as an example and who who he is, like... He's, he has nothing in common with a working class person. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that song he did was really um, inspired by my, my granddad who, who came from the Midwest and from a sort of a farming community in the, in the Midwest and very, very hardworking and sort of emotionally reserved, you know, had a hard time saying, I'm proud of you, I love you, you know, that kind of stuff. That, yeah such as this like stoic, right? Stoic Midwestern man thing. And when I when I play that song in the Midwest, it always <laughs> it has a special like resonance for me there somehow. But I but I, I guess I, I haven't thought of it in terms of its connection to I mean there's there's hardworking people on both both parties, right? Totally. And, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me about he did is is the recurring mentioning of his eyes. And that, to mm. me, is so powerful. I mean, you, you know, every time he closed his eyes, a rooster crowed. Um, every time he closed his eyes, a nail was drove. Kept a blue-gray eye on me until the day he closed his eyes and left them closed. What I mean, what a really mm. powerful, like, such a specific image that is so human, you know? Ah, uh, thank you so much. You're so well-researched. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, hadn't even, I didn't even really, like, remember that, that there were so many eyes in that. Yeah. Your daddy was a farmer His back was burnished red and gold And every time he closed his eyes The rooster He sowed a hundred rows of corn In the summer you were born And wondered what your life would yield How it feels To be a child hard to write it took a really long time to write that and um well paid off part of it oh thanks (laughs) thanks well it felt really true like when i got to the end it was like this felt this felt true and uh and i think i had tried to take it a few times in a direction that just didn't quite feel true so that's that like means a lot to me yeah anais i'd love to end this conversation going back to uh that album of yours hymns for the exiled from 2004 that we mentioned earlier yeah yeah um the song 
two kids, which I think if I had to pick my favorite Anais Mitchell song, that actually might be the one. It's definitely the song I put on and I'm like always just like distraught after um, oh, in, a, in a really good way. Um, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. devastating. And um, it feels like a really poignant marriage of the personal and the political yes. uh, while exploring themes of racism and immigration. Um, yeah. I mean, could you talk a little bit about the inspiration for, for two kids? Um, okay. So I was a student when I wrote that and I, I studied abroad in Egypt and um, I did some traveling with a friend of mine at one point in the Middle East and we went to Syria and we were in this little town called Deir Azur. Actually, it's not a little town, <laughs> um, a bigger town, and which is not too far from the Iraq border. And we, we checked into this hotel and yeah. the guy behind the counter was this, he saw that I had, I had my guitar with me and he was like, oh, you know, saw me as like a kindred spirit and he said I'm a poet and he took out like all these these books of poems that he had written and kind of hand bound together and started reading them to us like in English and in Arabic and um before we had even checked into the room it was, it was really funny and so I told him I was I wanted to write a, a song from the point of view of two children an American and an Iraqi child and this yeah. was during the Iraq war and um he said oh like I will write you a verse for this Iraqi child because he spoke the dialect um Iraqi dialect, or he knew it because he lived so close. Um, and so it was a co-write with this man that, you know, I don't, I don't know what's become of him. And it feels, you know, really poignant now because of all, all that has happened in Syria since the time I was there and since I wrote that song. Totally. Um, yeah. And also like, looking at war and racism from a child's perspective is just like, whew, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how much kids are learning from their parents right? Like this American kid. I remember at the time there was also like, um, there was this famous story about someone had, uh, they had sealed up, sealed up their house because there was like the, these fears about anthrax or like biological weapons, right? Back in those days. And someone it was in the States, they had, their whole family had become sick because they had sealed up the, the house so that in case there was some kind of biological attack, it, uh, and this, but this American kid was living with that weird kind of paranoia. Obviously, different from a kid growing up in a in an actually war torn country. But but um, but the, this fear and the way that these kids are dealing with it, trying to process it. Do you have to do you have to run right now? You know I do because I have to pick up my kid at school. Yeah, totally. Um, but what a pleasure! Thank you so much for doing this. Anais, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and, and the conversation and and your your amazing work and your inspiration. And I, I can't wait to have your music you. be part of my life going forward. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> Thanks a million. Yeah. Man. Bye. See you soon. Okay. Bye. I have a bed with a Superman blanket. He's not afraid. Dark like me Sometimes I can't fall asleep When I'm supposed to I'm thinking about something I saw on TV There was a 
big thank you to Aeneas for her time and interest in this project. Anything mentioned here, books or music, all of that is cited in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that with whatever podcast platform you're listening through. And if you can rate it and review it and share it, that would be amazing. That really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media. On Instagram and Facebook, it's Same Wavelength Podcast. On Twitter, Same Wave Pod. I post snippets and previews there of upcoming episodes and other fun stuff, so make sure you're following those. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Aeneas's words and ideas in their most honest form. Thank you so much to Aeneas's management for their interest in this project and their permission to let me use the songs throughout the conversation. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk. It's called Turn the World Around. I also use an instrumental version of our song The Story of My Morals at the beginning of this episode as well. Thank you to my bandmates Brett and Dave for being cool with me using these songs for the podcast. The next episode of Same Wavelength is going to be slightly different. Every few episodes, I'm going to dig back into my archives of interviews and pull one out that I find particularly moving and relevant. These will tend to be a little bit shorter, so the next episode will be a conversation with musician Kamasi Washington that we had together at the end of 2017. You realize like that's what makes musicians that you love so much so special, is the feel and vibe, and putting that back into jazz, for me, it, it really took the way I play jazz and bounced it up a whole nother level because it was, I wasn't just thinking about scales and harmonies and chords and stuff like that. I was thinking about the emotion that I'm conveying behind that and all those other little subtleties that really are the things that really kind of hit someone in the chest when they hear your music. Kamasi Washington is a saxophonist, composer, producer, and band leader based in Los Angeles. Kamasi has collaborated with Kendrick Lamar, Herbie Hancock, Lauren Hill, St. Vincent, Snoop Dogg. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you.